0: Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Thanks so much for joining us on the ITE Talks Transportation podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. This month, our guest is Jennifer Tool. Not only is Jennifer the founder and president of Tool Design, she's recognized for her work in urban planning and is an expert in bicycle and pedestrian facilities. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Bernie.
0: Talking about your company, as I mentioned, you were the founder of uh, Tool Design, that was I believe back in 2003. And you went from a single office to, I believe it's 17 offices that you have today in the U.S. and Canada. Tell us a bit about what motivated you to start the company and some of the key lessons that you've learned along the way, if you would.
1: Well, let's see. What motivated me to start the company, it was really a combination of things. On the one hand, I had developed a reputation for doing work in active transportation sustainable transportation, that kind of field. And I saw a big demand for just a new way of thinking about transportation. This is back in the early 2000s. It's still true today. People want to get from point A to point B without having to drive a car for every trip. And they want to have choices. And so I was seeing that opportunity and I was really excited about doing that work. And then The other thing, and this is going to show you that I was a pretty impatient person, but I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was frankly just frustrated at that time. Again, back in the early 2000s, there were very few women in leadership positions at companies. I just felt like there were times when I wasn't being taken seriously as a business person. And I was young and impatient about that. And I just had this moment where I got fed up and said, you know, I'm going to start my own company. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I realized that I came from a place of privilege to be able to even have that option. We had two sets of parents my husband's parents, my parents, who were not going to let my children starve to death. And It's just something that as a white middle-class woman, I constantly remind myself that I was very fortunate to have the privilege to set out on my own and start tool design.
0: You have 17 years of experience of running your own company under your belt at this point. What advice might you give to others who are thinking of following a similar path?
1: Yeah, it'll be 18 years in January, which I can't believe, but (laughs) a couple of things sort of stand out for me. And the first thing is that a company is really like a family. It sounds hokey in this age when there are so many sort of mega companies, but it's true. You're working together as a family to accomplish something. And I feel that it's really important to treat your staff with respect and integrity and patience and to care about them. You need to care about what's going on in their lives. But it's also about the power of we versus me, seeing beyond your immediate needs and making decisions that benefit a team. And that's sometimes very hard for people to do, but I think it's pretty essential to having a happy workplace. So we're very intentional about those things, celebrating the good times, taking care of people during the tough times, and being inclusive no matter what a person's background is, making them feel welcome the first minute they cross through that door or, as is the case lately, the first time they get on a Zoom call with us.
0: (laughs) It is a bit different these days. One of the things that you're known for professionally is complete streets, and we hear that term thrown around quite a bit these days. How do you define what a complete street is and and what aspects of that definition do you think need the most improvement in our communities?
1: In my mind, a complete street is one that doesn't just accommodate, but it also encourages people to take some other mode of travel than just driving a car, especially for those short trips, which are a pretty big percentage of all the trips we take. About half of all, all of our trips are three miles or less, which is um, an easy distance to ride a bike. A complete street still has cars. Don't get me wrong. They um, are part of the mix. But it also makes people feel equally comfortable and safe if they are not in a car, if they're walking or biking or taking transit. A complete street is one that doesn't feel comfortable for somebody who wants to go 10 miles over the speed limit Or race around the corners of intersections. But I think most of all, A Complete Street is one that people of all ages and races and backgrounds and abilities feel welcome. And I think that that's really at the heart of what A Complete Street is. And then the other thing I think that we forget about is that complete streets also have places to walk and bike to. They have destinations that are in close proximity to where people are are living or where they work. And that is really one of the big areas that I think needs improvement, particularly in suburban areas where people are really hungry for a walkable, bikeable neighborhood, but they just don't have enough destinations to walk or bike to. And then finally, I just think there's some practical things about complete streets. They don't require pedestrians and bicyclists to walk in close proximity to fast traffic. So they provide separation, things like separated bike lanes and protected intersections and sidewalks and measures to keep speeds lower.
0: Since March, when we had the lockdown at the beginning of the pandemic, I think the definition perhaps of... Complete streets, or at least the expansion of what a complete street is, has certainly grown. We've seen uh, cities not only put in bike lanes on rather short notice, but in fact close down streets so that they could be more friendly to pedestrians and bicyclists. Areas that have been set up parklets for outdoor dining during the warm weather months and perhaps even extending into some of the cold weather months in uh, the northern climes. How do you see that changing Going forth, do you see those changes as being long lasting? And do you think that those improvements or changes are going to be something that will outlive this pandemic?
1: Yeah, it has been really fascinating to see how people have ad- adapted during this time. And, you know, from my perspective, the momentum towards walkable, bikeable cities really started way before COVID. But our situation with the pandemic just magnified that need exponentially. And I think especially during lockdown, when there were many more people who were working from home or who were out of work entirely, who were caring for kids at home. Of course, there were travel restrictions and people really got bored and they (laughs) wanted to get out of their house. And more people than ever turn to biking as a way to um, get exercise and get out of the house. We know that bike sales in June were up 63% from a year before, which is incredible that Mm -hmm. we're selling out of bikes. And then you add to that the rise of um, electric bikes, which take out that sort of last big barrier, that sweat inducing. hill that you have to climb before you can get back to your house.
0: (laughs) I can relate to that. I just bought an electric bike back in September. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they're fantastic. But I I think the other part of this was just the realization that the changes to transportation patterns really worldwide were resulting in this dramatic improvement in air quality, anywhere from a 30 to 60% improvement in air quality. So, yes, I think that if we want this planet to survive the crisis of climate change, we're going to need to make it possible for people to walk and bike and make sure that these, in some cases, temporary measures become more permanent. And so that means more networks of separated bike lanes on busier streets and um, more connected networks and low traffic, low speed, neighborhood streets, better sidewalks, and safer intersections. Those are the kinds of projects that we're, we're seeing cities implementing all throughout the U.S. and Canada as well.
0: As you look around, not just North America, but perhaps even globally, are there any particular examples that shine to you that are great examples that maybe others can learn from?
1: Yeah, it has been really fascinating to see what the kinds of projects that are being done in big cities in Europe and London and Paris, where they've really embraced bicycling as a mode of travel, especially in the core of the city, where they really had a need to get people from place to place and were concerned about the spread of COVID on transit. But here at home, there have they've also been some great examples. One of the cities that I am so impressed with here in the US is. Houston, Texas. And, you know, Houston's not thought of as a big bike-friendly city. It hasn't traditionally been thought of that way. But Houston, I guess I should clarify, Harris County, which is where Houston is, they were beginning to tackle low-stress bike routes just prior to the pandemic. Since COVID hit, people have just been benefiting from all of those changes well over 50 miles of new bikeways in Houston. We've seen it help to build momentum for future projects as well. They had projects that were under construction just as the pandemic hit, and they have been continuing to build them because of the lockdown, and they've just seen tremendous ridership. A study came out um, just recently, the total volume of bike trips was 138% higher in May 2020, as in um, May of 2019, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. We just kicked off another project in Houston just yesterday, a nine-mile corridor with our partners in Houston, TEI, a local firm there who are fantastic designers. And I'm just so impressed with the political support that that network has had from Commissioner Ellis to Mayor Turner. and Bike Houston that's been there for so long advocating for these projects, it's just really a great success story.
0: One of the other transportation things that we've seen since COVID has been people staying away from transit. Initially, it was because people, everybody was working from home, so there was not much traffic on the roadways and there weren't many riders on transit systems around the world. Now, as we move into the autumn of 2020, we're seeing more and more traffic coming back in cities and states, but that ridership on transit is still down. Are there things that can be done to make transit more attractive, perhaps, with street design? Again, thinking about what's going on with COVID and concerns that people may have.
1: Yeah, you know, there's no doubt that transit use is going to come back. It certainly experienced a big dip as people have concerns about being in close proximity to other folks. But, you know, this is not going to last forever and there's always going to be a need for strong transit systems in our cities. And so I have no doubt that this is a temporary thing and Um, In the meantime, we need to continue to build streets that support transit, that we remember that people, in order to take transit, they have to be able to walk to that bus stop, they have to be able to walk to that station or bike to those places, and that we need to make sure that our streets offer transit as an option that's just as safe and just as accommodating as um, any other mode of travel.
0: Back in February, we talked to uh, one of your former colleagues, Tamika Butler, who at the time was Tool Design's Director of Equity and Inclusion. And it was clear from our discussion then that Tool Design is a leader in that area. Tell us a bit why that's been so important to you and what direction you see it taking given today's current climate and going beyond that, if you would.
1: I mentioned that a company is like a family earlier. And For me, almost as soon as that family started to grow, this is over a decade ago, I began to worry that we were not very diverse. And that was true of the profession in general, I knew. But we had done a great job of attracting women. And our balance was fantastic when it came to having women engineers and planners and landscape architects on staff but we were not doing as good of a job of attracting people of color. We had a really hard time finding candidates, getting people to apply to those positions, even though we were trying. So in 2017, we decided it was time to just face that issue head on. And so we convened a group of folks to talk about diversity within the company. That became our... Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion task force, our DEI task force. And we started taking steps to try to improve that situation and also to talk about ways to be more inclusive and welcoming. I knew from my background how it felt to be the only woman in the room. And so I could only imagine how a person of color coming into one of our very white offices, frankly, would feel as well. So we started just a much more intentional policy of interviewing diverse candidates and hiring people of color and training folks on the biases that we all have um, as humans. That's part of our DNA. We talked about what microaggressions look like and what they sound like. So this has continued to evolve over the past couple of years. Um, into some new areas. We've taken a long, hard look at our hiring practices, have looked for ways to improve them. We um, instituted a Rooney rule a few years ago. I don't know if you know what that means.
0: No, tell me, um, tell me what that is, please.
1: The Rooney rule is just a practice that for every open position that we advertise, we require that we interview at least one candidate of color and under the theory that there's really no way that if they're not even getting to the table then there's no way that your your workforce is going to be more diverse. So that was one thing that we did to improve that situation. Earlier this year we brought more diversity onto our board of directors. We've been creating safe spaces for our black staff to convene and to talk about whatever they want to talk about. We have A regular yearly survey where we ask questions about how people feel. Do they feel welcomed here? Um, Do they feel comfortable bringing up difficult topics? And whether or not we're going in, in the right direction with all of this stuff. We've continued to convene this DEI task force. They're a really important part of the company. And they're working on setting some measurable goals for the company, which will trickle down and become goals for our offices. That's just a few of the things that we've been up to. And, you know, I've said this many times to our staff that, you know, this is an effort that we will never, ever finish as long as as racism exists in our world and and racist policies impact. Our profession and people here in um, the U.S. and in Canada, we need to to keep working on this stuff. It's been a really important part of our what we have been doing lately.
0: You talked about how these changes have affected your company. Do you find that other companies are coming to you and asking how can we take on some of these responsibilities and make some of these changes that you've already made a tool design?
1: Yeah, that's it's been a really interesting and exciting part of this. There are several companies that where I talk to the CEOs of those companies on a regular basis about these issues and the things that they're seeing in their own company and what they're doing to bring these issues to light. And then I occasionally just get out of the blue today. In fact, out of the blue, I got an email from a company company Out west, that's starting to tackle these issues internally and asking for advice and wanting to know if I would just be willing to share some of the things that we've been doing. So that's really exciting to me to see that um, happening in our profession and sort of waking up um, and realizing that, you know, our profession was, you know, we have a lot of sins as a profession to make up for. And I really encourage your listeners to educate themselves about that topic. Learn more about how the combination of racial zoning policies and transportation policies in the early to mid-1900s had such a profound impact on the ability of Black people to earn a living and to get a loan to buy a house and to live in a place that was safe and where the air and water quality was healthy. You know, there were a lot of transportation decisions that decimated neighborhoods back years ago. And we have a lot of work to do to rectify that.
0: What kind of role do you think that organizations like ITE can play in fighting racism, fighting sexism, et cetera?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think that there is a great need to educate people about the past. Um, A lot of people are not aware of the role that our profession played and racial zoning and racist policies of the past. And I think providing a space to learn more about that is really important. I think, well, I'll, I'll say that I think there are a lot of things that we need to do to get more people interested in transportation planning and engineering at an at earlier ages, making sure that we're partnering with high schools to introduce students to this profession. I think that there's just a whole generation of kids that have no idea that what we do is a profession. So that's, that's one of the things that we have been doing at tool design is trying to work with high school students and form partnerships with HBCUs to get more more diversity into our profession in general and introduce this profession to those students and then hire them as interns. Some of our most talented people came to us first as interns. And so we really want to provide those opportunities for a very diverse students.
0: We've been talking on this edition of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast with Jennifer Tool. Jennifer is again the founder and the president of Tool Design. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking the time out to chat with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me.